0: The healthcare system is hard enough to navigate without having chronic illness diagnoses to boot. Feeling all at sea and looking for direction, advice, and deeper understanding? From a medical specialty glossary to tips on talking to your health insurance providers, download your free copy of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. I've been working behind the scenes as a patient advisor with the team at Flowly, an NIH-backed mobile app for helping manage pain, anxiety, and sleep. When you subscribe, Flowly sends you a virtual reality headset and heart rate sensor and then collects your heart rate to convert it into beautiful visualizations in VR to help relax your nervous system. This app comes with an impressive pedigree, having been developed by top doctors at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and USC. I've seen how their members have experienced life-changing impact like sleeping through the night for the first time in 15 years, feeling in control of their anxiety, and managing their pain. Right now, the team at Flowly are offering three months at 15% off on either their monthly or annual plans. Go to flowly2.page.link uninvisible, that's F-L-O-W-L-Y, the number 2, dot page dot link slash uninvisible to claim your discount and check out the app. It's so worth it, and there's even a vibrant community you can join as part of your membership. Go get it now! A content and trigger warning. This episode includes discussion of multiple suicide attempts as a response to chronic pain and gaslighting. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining me. I am here today with Gemma Tiffany. Gemma is a teen living with hyperacusis and is also the founder of Hyperacusis Awareness. And she also is an advocate for other forms of rare disease, chronic pain, and environmental illness. So she's a real powerhouse for her young years. Gemma Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And I'd love to start at the beginning of your story here, if you could let everyone know when and how you first found out that you were sick and how you've managed your health since then.
1: Well, um, I've always had, uh, was actually born with cataracts, so, um, I had some other, um, health issues before I got hyperacresis. Um, I'm low vision, legally blind, and I always had a lot of sensory issues, um, my mother said, as a baby and, um, toddler but the sounds didn't start becoming painful for me until I was um, around six. Mm-hmm. At first it was just things like the cafeteria or weddings or really loud things and I could just wear earplugs and it would be okay and it was just some pain in my ears. In second grade though I started getting really bad migraines and then everyday sounds like people talking and laughing um, or like even with my earplugs would trigger a migraine attack and at first they said it was just chronic migraine and then when I was in third grade my mom um, took me to an audiologist who diagnosed me with hyperacusis. although Unfortunately, like most audiologists, they are only familiar with the um, sound exposure protocol. And so, since then, for most of my life, they thought that hyperacusis was um, a psychosomatic condition. So I've had over the years, unfortunately, a lot of very painful treatments forced on me. And it's only just about a year and a half ago that a lot of new research has been being done to support the existence of actual neurological and autological mechanisms behind the condition. And that's been really wonderful for me.
0: Wow. So you've been through quite a journey. So how has that changed the treatments for you in terms of what this looks like for management going forward? Well,
1: right now, it doesn't really open up um, any new types of um, therapies or treatment options Um, at the moment. What it does do at least is offer me somewhat of protection from different types of harmful treatments and also gives me some hope because I am in contact actually with some of the research scientists myself, um, that they will be able to develop something in my lifetime, um, what, whether it be some sort of drug or possibly technology that could enable patients to actually control the amount of noise completely that comes into their ears.
0: Wow. So can you actually tell us as well, for those who are tuning in, this is quite a rare disease and one that a lot of people, including myself until recently, wasn't familiar with and others might not be familiar with. So could you give us a little background on what this diagnosis of hyperacusis means and how it manifests in your symptoms?
1: So hyperacusis is a condition in which people experience um, pain um, or other symptoms from normal, everyday noises. Um, the severity of hyperacusis can vary from person to person. Some people have very mild cases in which they can just wear earplugs in loud um, places and be fine. And some people have very severe cases where even with hearing protection, they'll get pain from the sound of a phone ringing or the refrigerator humming. Different pain is different for different people. Some people only get ear pain and some people also get head and facial pain as well as migraines. Some people can have balance issues or also seizures as well as um, confusion during the sounds for me. um, Sharp high-pitched noises like, say, uh, a phone ringing or an alarm uh, are like, stabbing in my temples and ears, and then other sounds like power tools or my washing machine and dryer are more like a throbbing pain on my forehead and the sides of my head, both types of sounds, if the exposure is prolonged for more than a few minutes, or if it's very loud, um, will, or if I'm already in a lot of pain, will result in me have experiencing a migraine attack. Um, oh, there are quite a few patients who have uh, other symptoms, such as migraine or seizures, which I do also have um, seizures, and so they do need to look more, I feel like, into the connection between hyperacusis and uh, some of these other conditions.
0: Absolutely, because it sounds like, given what you're experiencing and perhaps anecdotally, you know, other patients that you've spoken to, it sounds like, hyperacusis is very likely comorbid with other possibly neurological or environmental conditions, right? Yes, that's um, that's what I'm thinking. Absolutely. So in terms of the the recent developments in research um, that you've been able to access and and be in touch with these doctors about, um, what about the origin of this diagnosis. Is there any consensus as to how this may have occurred?
1: Unfortunately, no, because so most patients get it from uh, a sound, from sound exposure, being overexposed to noise. Some patients like me um, get it as young children who may already have some other medical conditions, but there's really no reason that they would see that them get it. And then some people rarely, though, but it does happen, are born with it. So it's probably the cause they're thinking was probably different from patient to patient. We're not sure um, what necessarily caused it in my case, Uh, although my mom kind of has suspicions that I could possibly have some sort of syndrome or condition with all these things being linked because um, hyperacusis is rare. And then also the cataracts I had as a baby um, was also rare. So we don't really have any evidence or proof of that though.
0: It's so interesting. And this is obviously something that we're going to need to talk about getting more funding for research on. And I'm wondering, I mean, it sounds like your mom is really acting as an advocate for you. I mean, obviously you're still a teenager. So under pediatric care, I imagine. And I'm wondering what that advocacy journey has looked like. I mean, your mom has, I presume, been stepping in as your advocate, as you've been on this journey to diagnosis and treatment. So how has that changed your relationship with her? Do you think it's brought you guys closer because she's been taking care of you as an advocate? Well, um,
1: I'm, I'm not sure. I will say that it definitely does change some things because um, my mom, of course, unknowingly and unintentionally, because a lot of the medical research was different, especially when I was a lot younger. Um, and although she didn't listen fully to some of the doctors she did implement some of those things and it was painful for me um and at the same time though I feel like she kind of knew deep down which is why she didn't fully go with everything and advocated for me um so I'm definitely extremely grateful for her because she does a lot for me especially in terms of daily life activities. Uh, There's a lot of things I'm not able to do because of the noise or driving me away when power tools come. So I'm definitely very appreciative and love her very much.
0: Mm. What about, I mean, it sounds like that's complicated as I think that's often the case with so many of us patients, right? You know, especially if you've undergone traumatic treatments, there's Definitely a a rebalancing of relationship there, but we're all learning together, right? I'm wondering about how you also came to become an advocate, Um, you know, where you found the bravery to do that. Was that something that was encouraged with you from an early age to stand up for yourself and um, to speak out? Or was it something that was innate for you? How did you figure that out? Well,
1: ever since... I was um, very young in elementary school, second, third grade um, and whatnot. Um, I remember thinking to myself constantly, I wish, you know, this was different, like in terms of my school situation, constantly being forced into um, loud environments or the sound exposure plans being forced upon me. And I kept saying, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to change this and do that. So that was part of it. And then the other thing was uh, advocacy for uh, me started at a very early age. My vision teacher, uh, my former vision teacher, she actually played a um, a big part of in my life. Um, she was the first person that I connected with who had some other type of chronic pain condition. She would have me braille letters to my IEP team and doctors uh, advocating about my different needs and trying to explain about my condition. Uh, So that was a big part of it. And then the more and more different types of things that I went through, as painful as it was, I kind of got this resolve that I was going to do something so that other people did not have to go through that and that I was going to change things. And with this whole virtual world, that's kind of become much more possible for me because I can control the volume much better and I can mute. I do have some anxiety, so self-advocacy was never something that's necessarily comfortable for me, and it's something that I have had to work on a lot. So uh, self-advocacy and uh, speaking up for myself is a two-way thing for me. Sometimes I can do it pretty easily, but a lot of times I um, get very nervous and anxious, and so that's something that I've really had to work hard at. Uh, over the years in order to do the kind of advocacy that I'm doing now.
0: Absolutely. But I mean, what a journey to have come so far at such a young age. You know, I mean, this all takes practice, this public speaking stuff and, and talking to people, especially about such personal issues. So I commend you for really taking that on with such grace. And it may or may not go without saying, but for those tuning into this episode as well, you are also controlling volume and comfort for yourself by tuning in via Zoom video so that you and I can see each other, but also you have your phone for the audio so that you can, as you say, mute or control your volume. Yeah. Absolutely. So can you tell us a bit, Gemma Tiffany, about what a typical day is looking like for you? How are you... Doing school, I mean, if you can't be in a traditional school environment, right, you know, if those noises are are too debilitating and the stimuli are too debilitating, how are you, um, you know, working toward being a student and managing symptoms? It sounds like a lot of it is virtual now, as you've said.
1: Yes. Do you want to know what my life was like before COVID or right now?
0: Um. I think actually a little bit of both um, because I'm curious to know the impact that COVID has had as well on the way you're interacting with the wider world and concerns about infection too.
1: So before COVID, um, I went to a, a small special education program. And although they did make a lot of accommodations, like I didn't go to lunch or related arts, and I didn't transition in the hallways with the other students. Um, I left early, and um, I came in before dismissal. I was in severe pain constantly all day, and I had horrible migraines after school where all I could do was just lay down, Um, and I would usually miss about one day each week before this pandemic actually i had recently been taken by my school to testify about a typical day kind of in my body to the um department of special education for our county and to make recommendations so i had gotten to meet the director of our special education, Dr. Savage, and I was trying to work with her to get her to implement um, distance learning and also a program in which they would be able to soundproof a room at my school and have a teacher work with me one-on-one, but that probably wasn't going to happen for at least from, that was last year in 10th grade, at least until 12th grade. Um, And so this pandemic for me has really made my schooling situation a whole lot better. Now um, I can dial in to my classes and I can move the phone to complete opposite side of the room, um, put it on mute or if it was just an extended period of time, I could just leave the class. I've been able to do a lot more, so much during this pandemic, things that I never thought that I'd be able to do. I've joined a poetry club at my school, and even all these different advocacy efforts that I'm working on now with, Um, being in contact with the legislators or even the novel that I wrote and my website, um, I would never have been able to have the energy to start all of those when I was attending the physical school building. Um, So it's been really wonderful for me, the virtual world.
0: That's incredible. What about also the social aspect of that? Um, are you finding that you're able to create relationships or maintain relationships virtually as well and finding people who understand what you're going through?
1: Yes. uh, It's been really awesome for me in terms of social media. I'm a part of a hyperacrucius support group. And I actually started my own group specifically for teens who have uh, hyperacusis because there's uh, plenty of groups for adults, but I realized there wasn't anything specifically for kids or teens. I've also been able to connect through my Instagram and Facebook business pages for hyperacusis awareness with many other people who have hyperacusis who have reached out to me and asked me for advice or just to, uh talk to another person who has it or applauded me on my efforts and the different work that I've been doing. It's also been through the Internet that I've been able to make all these different connections that I actually met you through um, Instagram.
0: I know. It's pretty incredible. And I mean, personally, that's how I meet so many people who are on the show is through social media. And it's wonderful to me that you're someone who's really seeing the benefit of distance learning, virtual connections, remote work opportunities, living with a disability where COVID has actually been a positive experience for you in that sense. And I only hope that the kind of accommodations that you have been fighting for will continue to be available to you, even after this pandemic.
1: That's what I'm really working towards. Um, I was meeting with my senator um, staffer from Senator Chris Van Hollen's office, as well as from Senator Ben Cardin and Representative Quayle. I'm trying to get them to introduce to Congress my personal proposal to add on a Title VI telepresence and high-level sensory modifications to the Americans with Disabilities Act. I wrote it up myself. Um, I'm part of something called YAR which is young adult rare representatives through the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases, and they help um, young adults with rare diseases to do advocacy work. Um, I've even been able to get some service hours through some of that work, so that has been really awesome. And I'm also in contact, in terms of my specific situation with our county's um, director of special education and letting her know how this has benefited me and trying to work to make it so that me and other students who are benefiting for medical reasons in our county can continue with distance learning.
0: You're so incredible. I mean, you're prolific in the work you're doing and I love that you've found such support from these various organizations, particularly as someone who's in that category of patient who is going to soon be transitioning from pediatric to adult care, you know, can often be a, a strange transition. Right. Um, and the fact that you are fighting for your care beyond just your health care, but also in terms of your quality of life and education is incredible. I can't wait to see what you continue to do as you uh, move forward in the world. And, I'm wondering, you know, it sounds like it took a few years for you to be diagnosed. Have you been in situations where you've been confronted and forced to justify or validate the existence of your diagnosis to others who simply couldn't understand it because they couldn't see what was going on for you? They couldn't see your experience? Oh,
1: so often, unfortunately, um, I, especially the younger... That I was in elementary and middle school. Um, I can actually give you an example. I was in an IEP meeting and I was talking about and describing my pain sensations. And um, an audiologist there said, Well, I'm sure she thinks that she gets pain. And there were um, doctors when I was 11 and was in the hospital because I had attempted suicide because I just couldn't stand living with um, this anymore in terms of people just were not understanding. it, Um, And I knew that because that they were going to do different types of exposure, and um, I didn't want to have to... I had already gone through that, and it had been extremely painful, and I had thought it would, at the time, better have been dead. And so I was in the hospital, and the doctors um, tried to convince my parents that I was just being manipulative and that I didn't get pain from sounds. Um, wow. It yeah, and then many times, um, this was one of the things that would frustrate me a lot in school. I would tell someone, um, the staff, a uh, specific staff or therapist particular, um, that the sounds were painful, and they would purposefully avoid using the word pain and try to trivialize it, like oh, well, the sounds bother you, and that doesn't really... It was almost insulting, because I was in pain, and they were almost, like, trying to deny that. Um,
0: Wow. So this is doctors, and not just in healthcare, but it sounds like also, you know, as you said, in, in educational institutions, teachers, authority figures who weren't taking you seriously, who were gaslighting you and your parents... Um, And I I really appreciate you sharing about your suicide attempt um, because I, I cannot even begin to imagine living with that kind of chronic ongoing pain, not being taken seriously, as you say, facing more of the same kind of exposure therapies that are only going to cause you continued pain. When did the tide turn? Was it coming across a, a particular doctor who finally said, I understand
1: Well, um, it was, I, it was kind of starting to change in, um, ninth grade. It was, I think it was multiple things. I, in eighth grade, I attempted, um, to kill myself again. Things hadn't really gotten any better. Um, this time I was not hospitalized. Um, I convinced the nurse, uh, the doctor who actually came to interview me, or psychologist, whatever he was, um, to let me go home. And shortly after that, um, because there still wasn't much research, but I knew that I had to do um, something. So I had been doing a lot of my own research to try to see if there were any alternative um, therapies that may be able to help. And I found out about um, PENS unit, um, Alpha STEM, and PEMF. And so I started using some of those devices, and there was... Um, um, there, there was helpful. Um, it it definitely has not cured me, and I have very severe hyperacusis still. Um, but what started happening in ninth grade um, that really changed things a lot more research um, started to come out from a nonprofit organization called Hyperacruces Research, which is trying to do research into uh, hyperacruces with pain. And I would show a lot of those articles to my parents and doctors. And at first, they weren't really listening um, to me. Uh, and, but then as time went on, and I got older and more research started coming out um, because since I've been 11, I've been doing a lot of my own medical research and writing up um, different research papers um, and cases that I would present to my doctors. So I did that um, in 10th grade in the beginning of 10th grade as well uh, in November, and my doctor thought that it was so good that he thought that I should present it, and so things really changed with my mom at that point, um, and she started believing um, that, you know, maybe the exposure is not necessarily helping me and that it was making things worse. And then things really started to change Um, during this pandemic when I actually reached out and spoke with some of the research scientists and my mom and I had a conversation with Brian Pollard, president of hyperacusis research on the phone. And um, I think the final thing that happened was about a month ago, and this was when my dad started to understand, because um, he still hadn't really been getting it, unfortunately. I had a major seizure, um, which I don't remember at all. But apparently, during the seizure, um, my mother had been screaming at the top of her lungs, she said, for help. And when I woke up, um, I had a migraine and my ears were sore. It was very apparent that I was unconscious. So I think, you know, that maybe um, helped him to realise that the pain wasn't all in my head.
0: It's just incredible the journey you've been on and the fact that, I mean, so many of us Spoonies, we always joke that we have like honorary doctorates, but at this point you've written and presented research papers to doctors and societies. You've um, been speaking to researchers on the forefront of evidence in your disease. And I'm... I mean, so continually impressed by your work um, and the fact that you've been able to turn this around with patience. I'm also wondering whether you were offered mental health support throughout this journey because I mean you've mentioned these suicide attempts. Um, I know that there were several psychologists who really gaslit you and your your parents. Um have, how have you gotten to the point where you're feeling stronger and more capable with this advocacy work? Because you seem to be much more focused on the journey ahead rather than on, you know, getting the diagnosis. Now we have that. So how, how have you been able to cultivate mental health support for yourself throughout this?
1: Well, definitely, I would say, um, especially in elementary school and middle school, Um, I think I mentioned before, my former um, vision teacher, she was one of the people who believed me and I had felt I could relate to her because um, she also has a chronic pain condition and definitely joining the hyperacusis support and research group and meeting other people with Hyperacusis, severe hyperacusis like myself, um, has definitely changed things a lot for me. And the more that people that I just am meeting on um, Instagram and Facebook who have um, these different conditions, um, and the thing that I find interesting across many different types of chronic pain or rare disease. conditions and um, is that even as they're so different a lot of times patients will be in pain and people don't believe them and i find that to be a common thread um across a lot of these conditions um, yeah so you've so, been able
0: to find community
1: yes that's probably has been more helpful um than any type of um, therapists that I've um, spoken with over the years. I will say um, that most therapists and um, psychologists and mental health professionals, unfortunately, um, that I had kind of, especially when I was younger, made things um, worse because they were just forcing um exposure onto me. And I was already in a lot of pain. Um, And then the pain made me miserable and upset and kind of just a cycle. Um, I do have a few people. um, There's one lady who um, she used to work at my school uh, who was studying to become a a social worker and she was very understanding and empathetic and we talked a lot um and then my school therapist she used to not really get it but as i've gotten older and as the research has started to change um she's been um understanding. So those two I, w- I would say have been supportive as well.
0: It's interesting because it sounds like there's also been a growing mistrust uh, of formal mental health support because you've had adverse experiences and you know speaking of these adverse experiences I- I'm wondering in terms of your experiences in the healthcare system um Have you ever noticed differences in care because of the way you present? You're a young Black woman, you know, going to see these doctors. Do you think maybe some of your circumstances would have been different or you would have been believed sooner, perhaps, had you presented differently, be that, you know, a different race, a different gender? Do you think that race and gender have played a role in the time it took for you to get diagnosis and be believed?
1: I? In my case, I thankfully think that I would say no. Um, this question's come up before, and I asked my mom, and she doesn't think that those things in my situation play the factor, but they're definitely um, big problems in our society uh, with women not being believed and medical racism. I do think that my age. Um, definitely played a part in this. I know there are many adults with severe hyperacruces who have not been believed by doctors. I feel like the difference when you're a kid, though, especially when you're um, a younger child, you're kind of helpless. If the doctors are telling your parents something and you're then telling them something, of course, they're probably going to believe the doctor you, even as the parent wants to help their child but in general you're going to think oh the doctor knows more than this you know little kid about this and that's um one of the big problems with conditions that are very rare and under researched like hyperacusis
0: absolutely so would you say that you know we talked about obviously gender inequity and and medical racism but also ageism especially with younger patients would you say that these issues in the healthcare system constitute their own public health crisis
1: um yes um i would, i thankfully as i said have never experienced medical racism um or um been treated differently because of my gender. Um, I'm growing up in a very diverse kind of county. Um, but I definitely think that there are problems in our society. And I also think that in terms of children being not believed, um, about being in pain or especially if they have rare symptoms uh, is, is something that really needs to change in our medical community and society. And another thing that definitely uh, doctors and healthcare professionals need to know that just because you haven't learned about something or you don't know about something um, or if your patient is experiencing something you know, opposite or contrary to what the research says, that doesn't mean you should just not believe them or that it's in their head. Just because you can't find the cause doesn't mean they're not experiencing it.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about the healthcare system before we talk about your advocacy work in more depth. Are you seeing pros and cons here, given your experience? Um, There don't have to be pros and there don't have to be cons, but, um, you know, what ways are you seeing the U.S. healthcare system work for patients and what ways is it falling short and requiring improvement? Um,
1: well, uh, definitely a con. I would say that um, not everyone has health care and not everyone has uh, quality health care And um, I'd say another big con is that a lot of um, patients with different types of uh, chronic pain conditions, um, especially rare pain disorders like hyperglysis are not believed Um, and definitely the discrimination in our healthcare system um, is, is definitely a problem. And the, fact, I feel like that patients should be able to choose their own doctors that they want to see and the type of um, care and treatments they want to um, receive.
0: Absolutely. Any pros at all? They don't have to be.
1: <laughs> um, I... mean, I guess uh, it's a good thing we we have Medicaid and Medicare in our uh, healthcare system. So I think those are um, good things.
0: Absolutely. So taking care of those who are cash strapped or elderly or disabled, being able to help people in some manner.
1: Yes. I'm sorry. I unfortunately don't know too much
0: No, that's, that's, well, you do. Um, This is the thing. This is the reason I asked this question because you do, I mean, you've been in it and a lot of your experience has been adverse and there's a reason why that is. And that's really what, you know, why I asked this question is to get down to sort of brass tacks with people and, and say like, are there any benefits to our system? Like, or does it fundamentally need to change? And it sounds given your experience, like there's more change that needs to happen than status quo staying the same
1: yeah definitely Mm.
0: absolutely so talk to us more about your advocacy work i know you've touched on a few points here and there but i'd love to hear about how you started hyperacusis awareness what inspired you to do it and how you're moving forward between your writing and your legislative work uh, to raise awareness of rare diseases and conditions like hyperacusis
1: Well, um, hyperaclusis awareness is actually um, connected to the nonprofit organization, Hyperaclusis Research. Um, I started Hyperaclusis Awareness during the pandemic, actually, in uh, April um, was when I uh, started the website and the Instagram and Facebook business page. Uh, And it's kind of just taken off um, from there. And I've been able to kind of network on on those social media platforms. The main projects that I'm working on right now are submitting a proclamation to, to my governor to have May 3rd through May 10th declared as Hyperacusis Awareness Week. Another advocate who I was able to connect with, who um, has not formally been diagnosed, but um, suspects she likely has hyperacrusis, was teaching me Um, specifically how to submit a proclamation has to be done in a a specific format. And then the other thing I'm working on is trying to get the Title VI that I mentioned, telepresence and high-level sensory modifications added to the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, I decided that a great way to do that would be to start kind of a grassroots effort and the moderator of the group i'm in hyperacusis supporting research has agreed to help me as well as um, barbie engel from international pain foundation and then my other um, big project is i'm trying to work to put in place clinical guidelines to protect patients with hyperacusis including On the pediatric level, so I'm waiting to hear back from the American Academy of Audiology's guidelines and strategic committee. Um, I already do have a team of people, research scientists, um, who would be willing to help in writing or drafting um, those guidelines and then the plan would be to submit them to the other American Academies, um, such as American Academy of General Physicians, Neurology, Psychology, Occupational Therapy, because patients likely with hyperacusis will end up seeing some of those providers, and I planned on the guidelines um, going from things such as symptoms, diagnosis, and um, management, protocol Um Then the other big project that I am working on is trying to start up programs, and this is through the hyperacusis awareness, and the reason I started it as an add-on to hyperacusis research, um, to try to start programs to help patients who have hyperacusis, I Started, I currently don't have anyone enrolled in it yet, a patient education and support program, which is almost like a mentoring program for people who are new to of or who are struggling in, in their journey with it. Uh, I also have started, um, meaning I have all structured out the curriculum for people who are either family members, friends, teachers, co-workers, to someone who has hyperacusis to help educate them on how they can accommodate that person. So I'm working on that. And then I'm also working on um, a project with the two admins, more Black and David Truorgy, from um, hyperacusis support and research um, to make it so that patients can more easily find information online about hyperacusis um, in terms of the search engines because it makes it really difficult for patients to find any sort of um, recent information. Like A lot of um, stuff is old and they're not updating them, so that's A big project of mine. And I also try to raise awareness about my condition through creative writing. I wrote, um, it's currently in the editing process. I'm working with um, my editor, Ms. Hartman, and we're planning to indie publish it. A book called Alien Princess. And although it's a science fiction novel, my main character as hyperacrusive i'm was currently working on writing the second book in the series so i try to raise awareness through my writing as well and you then are i so
0: prolific oh gosh there's more go for it
1: <laughs> um i had an idea that i um presented to barbie engel from international pain which she liked um me becoming a youth programs director for them so uh i would basically they have a mentoring program but i had suggested one specifically for teens and young people and also being having a youth column in their newspaper and so i'm currently having my friend who has hyperlucous write up her story which should be the first um edition when it's ready And then I'm also working with the Rare Youth Revolution um, and submitting content to them. Um, My story, they portrayed through a poem that I wrote and also a video.
0: You are unbelievable. I don't know how you get it all done, (laughs) but you are so motivated and it's so inspiring, Um, you know, that you're, you're taking this pain you've been through and turning it into something positive for other people. And that's what makes you stand apart as an advocate. I mean, it's unbelievable what you've been able to accomplish. And particularly, as you've said, it sounds like since COVID kicked in and you've been able to do all this stuff virtually.
1: Yes, it's it's been incredible. I never could have imagined, um, you know, 8, 10 years ago that, that I would be doing these types of things uh, or that these, that I would be able to do these types of things.
0: Um, I mean, part of it is also here you are 16 years old. I feel like I'm talking to someone who's the same age as me, <laughs> you know, like you have a wisdom and an experience about you that um, has in many ways forced you to become more adult before your time, but as such has also enabled you to have these kind of, contacts and conversations with people that are changing minds.
1: Yes. Um, I I often felt a lot of times when I was younger, like I was kind of fighting for myself um, or having to do a lot of research. Like I said, I was presenting research to the doctor. So, mm.
0: Incredible. So, let's talk about some top three lists I would love for you as someone who is living through this experience continuing to live with chronic pain and been through everything you've been through to offer some tips uh, to those of of, uh, who are tuning into this episode what are the top three tips that you would offer if they're also living with an invisible chronic pain condition um Perhaps it's advice to your younger self, um, but what are the three pieces of advice you would offer uh, to help others succeed in their wellness management as you have?
1: I would definitely say to keep fighting for yourself and to know you know your body best, to fight for yourself, and to try to find other people Uh, who have similar conditions and that you can relate to. So those would be my top three.
0: So perfect. What about, here's a fun one. Top three things that give you unbridled joy. So things you're unwilling to compromise on, and these can be guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, or even comfort activities when you're in pain or recovering from a seizure. What are three things that you turn to when you need to light yourself up and give yourself some some joy and hope?
1: Well, I love listening to books. Um, It's one of the reasons I write, especially when I was younger. And a lot of times I would be laying down resting. I have them like on volume one and most people can't even hear them, but I can and I love doing that. Stories. Um, I find a lot of strength and comfort in, my books. Um, I, even though I'm 16, I still love playing with my dolls, um, mermaid dolls and Barbie dolls, especially dolls with bendable joints. Um, And I do definitely love um, mermaids, um, just mermaid stuff. I have pictures of mermaids on my walls. I uh, like to watch different mermaid shows like H2O and make the mermaids. I I would say those things.
0: I bet you're excited for the new live action Little Mermaid that's coming soon, right? There's a a new live action Little Mermaid? Yeah. Did you not hear about, there was a, this was a whole thing with Disney because the girl that they've cast to play Ariel is actually black too. Oh. I'm seeing so much excitement on your face. <laughs> so um, what is your ask for listeners today? I'll get back into this. What can they do to support you and the rare disease community in your ongoing work?
1: I would say um, if you want to help, um, you can definitely reach out to me actually via email. Um hyperacusis, which is H Y P E R A C U S I S dot awareness at gmail dot com or uh, on my Instagram page, hyperacusis underscore awareness on Facebook. I can send over, if you're interested in helping, information that you can use to email or call your senators and representatives to ask them to introduce and support um, Title VI telepresence and high-level sensory modifications to the ADA. And I can also send you over the proclamation um, because you can submit it to as many governors in all of the 50 states as you want to. Uh, So those would be my two main things uh, that that I'd say you can do to help.
0: I think that's absolutely wonderful. And what's next for you in your advocacy and in your wellness journey? Because I imagine you're living in a very quiet house um, to keep your pain in check. So what does that look like for you as you move forward with your life and career?
1: Well, um, yes, you're correct, my bedroom has actually been soundproofed, Um, and so I'm currently, because I'm a junior, starting to look into online college options, I'm currently considering an online creative writing program in the UK, which is the distance learning, and so I'm thinking that I want to go all the way right now and get a full online PhD perhaps even in creative writing and then um, I'm definitely my goal is to publish my novel Alien Princess before I graduate and I'm currently trying to um, start up um, I call it authorpreneuring which kind of blends my advocacy with my writing, um, different opportunities in which I could potentially get paid for some of my advocacy work and speaking, as well as for um, some of the written testimony um, or accounts uh, that I've been providing about my condition. And then I started looking into different services and agencies as I get older that could help cover the cost of things like soundproofing a house when I get older or different types of um, at-home aids or different things um, to help me in terms of things that I'm not able to do right now due to the noise. So I've been looking into different options for that. And I just want to continue uh, as I grow older and become an adult with um, all of my advocacy efforts and all of my writing as well. And I want to really be able to help other people um, with my condition. And I hope that, you know, when I'm like, say, 35, I can look back and see, you know, Title Six in place, guidelines established um, to help those with hyperacusis, and I really just hope to also work on a personal one-on-one level, um, especially with uh, not for a living, but with young people who have my condition or similar conditions to be able to help them as well.
0: You are such a powerhouse. Can you remind everyone where they can find you and your work as well, in case they want to get in touch?
1: Um, so my website is h y p e r a c u s i s awareness. So hyperacusis awareness, all one word. dot wordpress. dot com backslash Um, Or you can find me on Instagram, hyperacusis underscore awareness, or Facebook page, hyperacusis awareness. Um, Or you can email hyperacusis, H-Y-P-E-R-A-C-U-S-I-S, awareness at gmail.com.
0: we will provide links to everything you've mentioned on the okay. website on the webpage for this episode um Gemma, tiffany you are so incredible and such a an amazing inspiration to so many of us in this chronic illness community and i'm forever grateful for your time today and for bringing hyperacusis to our awareness um and for b- living through your pain and helping others and uh providing respite for others. You're you're really a truly amazing person.
1: Thank you.
0: That's it folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.